Welcome. You're listening to a podcast by the International Bolshevik Tendency, a Marxist organization fighting for international working class revolution to overthrow global capitalism. We can be found online at bolshevik.org, on Facebook at Bolsheviks, on Twitter and YouTube at IBT1917, and Instagram at Bolsheviks1917. This talk is entitled Program and Action in the 1984 Longshore Boycott. It was originally delivered by longtime ILWU militant Jack Heyman in Berkeley, California on 13 December 2014. I want to start off by giving people, especially the younger people here, uh, an idea of what it was like in, in 1984 to actually organize an action like this and make it successful. Um, there were three events, I think, that captured the essence of what the 1980s was like. Reagan had just gotten elected in 1980. One of the first things he did was there, there was a strike by the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Union. And even though the leadership of that union had supported him, for uh, his presidential candidacy, he turned around and arrested them, put them in shackles, and it was very uh, prominently displayed in the news media. It was a message to the trade union movement to not strike, not fight back against your bosses. That was number one. Number two was the Sandinistas in Nicaragua had just overthrown the Somoza dictatorship. And the Civil Guard of Somoza began what was called the Contra War against the Sandinistas. Congress voted to stop the funding, but the Reagan administration underhandedly, secretly, was funding the Contra uh, counter-revolution in Nicaragua. <coughs> And the third thing that I think colors the whole picture for what happened in the 80s was the, the Polish trade union, Solidarność, was receiving millions of dollars from the CIA, just as the Contras were. Uh, and they were striking against the Stalinist regime in, in Poland. Uh, and there was just effusive praised in the U.S. press for this Democratic Union, which was really uh, funded by the CIA and whose leadership was beholden to the uh, Catholic Church. It was a form of reaction. Uh, and those three things, I think, colored what was happening at the time of this anti-apartheid struggle. So um, what are the lessons to be drawn? Can you hand me the water over there? Um, what I got from this struggle, because I had just come into the ILWU in 1980, uh, was that a small revolutionary organization with workers in a caucus, with a party fraction running an operation in the union, can recruit militant workers to class struggle actions. I think that's what happened. Uh, in 1984. Um, as Howard explained, he, he uh, 
and others had been uh, purged from not only the caucus but others from the Spartans League at the time and they still carried forward what uh, was a class struggle program in the Longshore Union and that was the transitional program is to develop a fight based on where the workers consciousness is at a given time which is certainly not revolutionary to begin with and bridge that to the need for workers to challenge the system uh, one concrete example would be in terms of automation and employment we would argue in our my, I was in the Maritime Union in New York Howard was in the uh, Milton Caucus here in, in uh, California, we would argue for 30 for 40, 30 hours pay, uh, 30 hours work for 40 hours pay. So we wouldn't lose any wages, but we'd work less or fewer shifts in a day. That put the onus on the employer, but that required a struggle, a strike against the employers. And that, that's the essence of what the transitional program was about. Um, so. There were a couple key events that happened here on the West Coast in the 19 in the late 70s. One was the Pinochet military uh, dictatorship had overthrown the democratically elected Marxist government of Allende. The uh, International Transfer Workers Federation based in London, which is a social democratic organization, called for workers' actions around the world. Here in California, there was a block between the Milstone Caucus and the trade union bureaucrats to picket a ship that came in from Chile that was quite successful. Uh, and even more importantly, there was a struggle in the Local 6 warehouse uh, in, uh, I, was that in Fremont, Howard? Union City. Union City. Uh, in, in which they were, uh, the workers in Local 6, the warehouse of ILW, were striking. The union bureaucrats was, were not mobilizing the workers to man the picket line to stop scabs and the uh, under the leadership of Bob Mandel and the Milton Caucus or people that were to join the Milton Caucus they mobilized not only the workers in that struck plant but in the the warehouses around that to put up a picket line which means don't cross under no circumstances were they going to allow people to cross the picket line and because it was a mass picket line with all the workers in the area, or many of them, coming to the picket line, they had to not only stop the scabs, but they fought the police as well. And uh, this is the kind of struggle that gave credibility and authority to the people that were to uh, become members of the militant caucus in the ILWU. Now, I was on the East Coast at the time. I was a member of the National Maritime Union. The National Maritime Union used to be the largest union, maritime union in the country. It, along with the LWU, was linked 
through its leadership, which supported the Communist Party. The difference, and there was a major difference, is that Harry Bridges remained sympathetic to the Communist Party, whereas Joe Curran, the president of the National Maritime Union, became a fink. And he fingered different people that were supporters of the Communist Party, and they were purrs. Uh, during the McCarthy period, thousands of long, uh, south, thousands of seamen, but also longshoremen, lost their right to work, their ability to work. They were deregistered. Uh, so there's a big difference between the National Maritime Union, which purges its members, the, the militants, the leftists in the union, and the ILWU. In fact, a lot of the members of the National Maritime Union and other unions that were purged during this McCarthy period found a safe haven in the ILWU. Uh, just a couple to name very quickly. Uh, Ferdinand Smith, the black, uh, probably the greatest order of all the maritime uh, unions in, in the uh, 30s and 40s. Uh, there was also Joe Stack and Black and Myers. They all, uh, the, the last two came over to the ILWU. Uh, and and were able to work there. So I wanted to briefly explain that uh, this is a, a quote from Lenin, which I think gives a, the, a very clear understanding of how bourgeois governments work. Uh, the anti-labor law is one of the basic means employed by capital in its struggle against workers' movement. It is intimately bound up with other forms of struggle against the working class. In his work, Discord in the European Workers' Movement, Lenin pointed out that in all countries, quote, in all countries, the bourgeoisie inevitably develops two systems of rule, two methods of struggling for its interests and defending its dominance. Sometimes these two methods are employed successively other times, they're used together in different combinations. The first method is that of force, the method of rejecting all concessions to the workers' movement and supporting all the old and obsolete institutions, the method of uncompromising rejecting of reforms. The second method is that of liberalism, steps in the direction of developing political rights implementing reforms, granting concessions, and so forth. And I, I wanted to quote Lenin because one of the, uh, in, in our caucus in the National Maritime Union, it was supported by the Spartacist League, it was called the Militant Solidarity Caucus. Uh, there was another opposition in the Union. It was a reformist opposition headed up by Jim Morrissey. Now Jim Morrissey used to be a goon for Curran, only a few years earlier, during the McCarthy period, against the communists. Now he was found himself in opposition. But his uh, claim to fame was his opposition was based on suing the Union in the bourgeois courts. Uh, and so we opposed that. We opposed it vigorously. And the one organization that he relied on, Morrissey, was the Association of Union Democracy. It, its raison d'etre is simply to sue unions. That's their only reason for existence. And they went after union after union after union, uh, trying uh, desperately to uh, 
went supporters over to their position. Now Marcy ended up suing the union, winning some money, and then he disappeared. He he was out of the picture. Uh, we continued to fight, but never were we able to lead the struggles like the militant caucus led here in the KNC struggle and also the anti-Pinochet uh, demonstration. In New York, I headed up at, uh, the United Front effort to picket a ship from Chile that had come in. And the difference is very clear because when we went to picket in New York, uh, some characters out of uh, 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 the Godfather stepped out of a big black limousine with their alligator shoes and ties and jacket and, and we knew they were packing and so uh, we weren't able to put up a picket line the way they did here on the West Coast. The ILWU is a very, very different union than the ILA is on the East Coast. Um, So, we want to explain a little bit about what an inside and outside operation is. Uh, when, when you have a community picket line, that's not people from the union putting up a picket line, it's people in the community. And in order for that to work, you need to have inside support. And so, this has come up now because of the anti-Zim ship protests that have taken place in August and September. Uh, we were able to have successful community pickets in various struggles here on the West Coast because what we did is we worked closely with and had meetings with uh, various uh, community organizations to set up picket lines so they would know when to put the picket line up, who to talk to, and uh, when to take the picket lines down, when an arbitrator is coming. So they learn the whole scenario uh, from people on the inside. Uh, and so those pickets were successful to the extent they were able to collaborate with union activists. <coughs> but the best action is not a community based action, but one that the workers take themselves. And that's what the 1984 anti-apartheid strike was about, that Howard uh, clearly delineated. Um, his, his motion initially was to hit the next ship that came in from South Africa. Leo Robinson's amendment was to work the ship, but not the cargo from South Africa. Uh, and he also elaborated that we should do it as individuals. Now, I think the stronger position would have been just for the union to take the action and, and not work the ship, but certainly it's supportable, that kind of an amendment, because the effect of it was what you saw in the film. The cargo from South Africa was not worked, and it bolstered the spirits of the workers in South Africa. I just want to read briefly a letter that was sent to us in the organizing committee for that 1984 action, <laughs> from South Africa. Uh, a member of our support committee received a letter from a leading official recently released from jail of the Longshore Union in Durban, South Africa, which said in part, 
I am deeply impressed by your compassion, solidarity, love for the underdog, the oppressed, exploited masses of our land. Your contribution, dedication, determination for social change is indeed a morale booster for me and the millions of our brothers and sisters who continue to face the armed might of the South African government through the barrel of the gun. Bota's new constitution is shredding more and more. And mind you, this is only the beginning. So this was a strike conducted by the Longshore Union itself. The members voted for this action. It was in defiance of Taft-Hartley, which is, uh, makes it illegal to have a sympathy strike, and in fact, that's what this was. And it was in collaboration with the workers and in defense of the workers in South Africa. Uh, so that's the kind of support that that had. Um, Yeah, I'll just show you this with you. I'm not going to read. This was also an award that was given to us later for those of us who were in the organizing committee for that union action. Um, so I want to get into some of the details of what actually happened. Now, we were meeting every day, the organizing committee for the action, up in the Henry Schmidt room. Henry. The room was named after Henry Schmidt because he, Henry Schmidt was one of the organizers, one of the key organizers of the 1934 uh, maritime strike. So we're meeting up in the Henry Schmidt room and one issue came up constantly. We knew there was going to be an injunction coming down and every time the vote came it was unanimous. We were going to defy the injunction. So what happened on the day the injunction came down? The Secretary Treasurer Tom Lufer went down to the dispatch hall and he read the injunction from the from the judge. I went up to uh, Lufer. I was a member of the Inland Boatmen's Union, not a member of Local Ten at the time. And I said, "Listen, the organizing committee has a different position. Our position is to defy the injunction. We want the right to give our point of view to the membership." And he said, well, you can't do it from the cage here, but you can go over there and speak. And so there was actually a spontaneous united front that was developed on the spot for those that wanted to defy the injunction and continue the action. That was uh, Howard, uh, Stan Gow, who was a supporter of the Spartacus League, uh, Larry Wright, myself, and a few others. And... Howard, as he pointed out, he spoke first, but there were actually members in Local 10 that were opposed to the action. They wanted it to be over. They wanted to go back to work. And they became very hostile. And it became dangerous because after Howard spoke, they were actually moving very aggressively towards the table where we were, where we were standing. We actually took a table and stood on top of it so we could address all the, the members out there. <laughs> So we decided to disband the the impromptu meeting right there in the hall and go down to the picket to, to the gate and stop the picketing. So when we got down there, the trucks were already going in. Uh, this was a little after seven in the morning, uh, and so a number of us jumped in front of the trucks at the gate and blocked the trucks from going in. At that point, we commandeered the truck 
that was about to go in. It was a flatbed truck, so it made a perfect stage for us to, to, to address the workers. And we had a bullhorn, but um, two things happened. The uh, Communist Party played a very bad role in this. They wanted to end the action because their position was, well, the union's going to get fined. But the fact of the matter is, the organizing committee for the action, which were uh, composed of union members, voted to defy the action. So they got into a rumble with us up on the platform. Um, the police saw this, they moved in, and the Sparses League, in typical abstentionist fashion, stood on the side. They had posters to picket, but they left them in their plastic bags. They didn't get out to, to join us in continuing the action. And so between the police and the Communist Party, the uh, picketing was disbanded, and that was the end of the action after 11 days. Um, so, there are, there are a couple things I just wanted to go over. You know, so the important thing is to have a class struggle program and an organization in the trade union that's going to advance the, the struggle. Um, but there's another element that's actually needed, and you need to be bold. When the time is when, when the time is right, you have to be able to strike, to take action. It's not just a matter of reading from a textbook and, and putting forward positions. It's not a matter of having an organization. You need a third element, which is when the time is right, you have to be able to move and take action. And I think those three ingredients is what made the 1984 action happen. Um, so between organization, class struggle program, and having the fortitude and determination to push made it happen. Despite the fact that these were the Reagan years, trade union bureaucrats were sticking their heads in the sand, there was a sense of defeatism, we were able to prevail for 11 days. And as you saw in the film, it was a real inspiration to the workers in South Africa to see that workers in this country were actually striking on their behalf. So, uh, one important aspect of the 1984 action was that for a long period of time before that, there really hadn't been actions because even though the Vietnam War was going on, there were a lot of anti-war protests, the ILW didn't really take any actions against the war. They were, individual members were picketing against the war in marches and so forth, rather, uh, but they kept loading military cargo for Vietnam. So the importance of this action, the lessons to be learned from the 1984 anti-apartheid action is that it paved the way for further actions down the road. Because although there was a standing injunction against the union, the members felt that they had the power to take action. Uh, so just a couple of uh, actions that followed that 1984 action. In 1987, the Inland Boatman's Union, uh, an affiliate of the ILWU, struck and the uh, Crowley Maritime was the company we were striking against. 
they brought in scab ships into Redwood City in the port down there. And through a supporter in the uh, clerks union, Gene Weisberger, I think Howard may be mentioned in, he was the same clerk that was spotting when the Australian cargo was finished on the ship and they got down to the South African cargo. This was the same brother that uh, got through to the clerk's president and said, look, there are scabs working the, these barges in Redwood City. We've got to shut the port down. And so still, this is just a few years after the anti-apartheid action, all the ports in the Bay Area, seven ports were shut down. Longshoremen joined the Boatman's Union in Redwood City, and we stopped the scabs. In the face of the police, armed police, we blocked the scabs. We marched down to the vessel, chased the scabs off, and that was directly related to what happened in the anti-apartheid strike at Pier 80. Uh, I'm going to move quickly here. So 1996, there was uh, a Liverpool dockers uh, strike. They were locked out and there was a strike. We put up uh, a union-centered picket line, uh, mostly ILWU members and retirees, in front of the ship from England demanding the uh, longshoremen honor the picket line. Of course, they knew the members on the picket line, and so they honored that. And that Neptune Jade, the ship, wasn't worked for four days in Oakland. It went up to Vancouver, Canada. It wasn't worked there, the same situation, the picket line. It went to Yokohama, Japan, and for the third port in a row, that ship wasn't worked again. And so that was, once again, it was inspired by the 1984 anti-apartheid action. 2001, uh, well, the, the year before, Charleston Longshoremen, a predominantly black union, uh, were picketing and five of their members were arrested. And we in Local 10, because it's a predominantly black union and our local is predominantly black, we went to uh, the caucus, our convention, and called for an action in solidarity with the Charleston Longshoremen. And we were able to bring that action to the entire labor movement. It became a cost of living, the American labor movement, to defend the Charleston Five. Uh, in 2002, we were locked out. We had massive marches and rallies in the port in Oakland and through the streets of San Francisco. So we were continuing this legacy of militancy, of class struggle. In 2003, the start of the war in Iraq, I think some of you may remember, there were demonstrations in the port here. But the problem was it was a community picket that went into the port. It wasn't uh, effectively organized with an inside-outside operation. And the, pic the picketing only lasted for two hours before uh, there was a state of... Uh, hysteria in this country after 9-11. And, and so in California here, there was a uh, Gray Davis set up uh, California Anti-Terrorism Information Center, which said that the head of the a spokesperson for that uh, anti-terrorism center said, if you're demonstrating against the war that's being fought against terrorism, then you can be called a terrorist. And that's how the police approached the demonstrators in 2003. They attacked them. Uh, so the picketing only lasted for two hours and then longshoremen went to work. 
So our final revenge, I mean, a lot of, a number of people were hit with rubber bullets, concussion grenades, wooden dowels, and numbers, uh, dozens were arrested. I was arrested myself. We got our revenge on May Day 2008 when we had a resolution before the Union Convention to strike on May Day 2008, and this is the literal uh, words in the resolution were, to strike against the imperialist war in Iraq and Afghanistan and to demand the troops withdraw immediately. We shut down every port on the West Coast through a union action, not a community picket, but a union action for uh, the entire day shift, the West Coast uh, was shut down. And uh, just a couple quick ones. There was no other union in the country that took action for the Wisconsin workers that were under attack, but we did. We shut the ports down here in the Bay Area uh, in solidarity with Wisconsin. And finally, uh, the Zim actions that took place. They were mostly inside-outside operations with support of the Longshore Union. Picket lines were set up. Uh, longshoremen didn't cross, uh, both in August and September. And the September one was interesting because the longshoremen on their own refused to take a dispatch to the ship, so there was not even a need for the picket line that morning. And finally, I want to say, all of you have seen what's happening uh, out in the streets today and for the last couple weeks, protests against police killing of young black men. We shut down all the ports in the Bay Area in 2010 to demand justice for the family of Oscar Grant, who was killed by Meserly, a BART policeman. That's what's needed in the labor movement today. They have to link the struggle of the trade unions to what's happening in society in general. Police repression and the inequality of wealth, which inspired the Occupy movement. Those are struggles that have to be brought into the working class to make this a vibrant working class and ultimately build a socialist society. Thank you.